listeners, welcome back to The Learning Curve. Here we are together again, Kara and Gerard, two peas in a pod. I wasn't invited on the yacht trip. I heard it was pretty all right. I heard there was a lot of lobster. Maybe you talked about the carry. I feel slightly left out, Gerard, but I still I want to hear about all that you were doing on um, out on out on the great open sea, um, just so I can feel even more envious. Well, it was my first trip to that part of Maine. I've been to Portland before. In fact, it was for an SPN conference many, many years ago and went there really to uh, meet with our team to talk about what uh, moral formation and character will look like with our founder, uh, Dr. James Hunter, and others. And so, yes, while there was some fun stuff like riding a boat and eating lobster and the great things that come along with being that beautiful part of the country, it really gave us the time to exhale. Uh, It was my first plane trip since December 2019. It's the first time I had a chance to walk into a restaurant and not wear a mask as I'm fully vaccinated at this point. So it was fun and good time. Of course, missed being on the show, but uh, you were in good hands uh, with our uh, co, I should say our our co-host or co-guest, but um, it was good stuff. As you say that, you were on a fun trip also in New England recently. So I'd like to hear about that as well. Well, well, I was, I mean, I was with, I was with my wonderful children taking a little off. I I will say um, that I hosted an end of the year school party for only COVID appropriate outdoors and only for the um, children in my daughter's class. But I ended up, um, yeah, I had, I don't know, like 15 screaming 11 year olds running around my backyard. I mean, it was good. (laughs) It really felt luxurious. Um, yeah. And then and then after that, the family, we spent a little bit of time at the beach. And um, yeah, it, it was it was just lovely. But, you know, here's something else that you talked to, that you just mentioned that I want to talk about. And that is the plane ride, because I think I told you that I, too, recently took my first plane ride. And um, how, how did it feel to you? It felt good to be back on. Um it was travel. You've got business travel in your soul. It's just built right in there, isn't it? Well, what I will say, even if it's business travel, although I was uh, in Delta Comfort, I'm a big Delta fan. So shout out to Delta. What I can't say is the snacks have definitely gotten punier than before. You know, I'm like, wow. Do they exist? Even even if you're in a comfort class, I don't think they're there anymore. No, it was uh, what they had. They usually had kind bars, which, of course, I can eat, but there were no kind bars that were offered. Uh, I think I don't think on that trip there was any alcohol served. As you know, there have been over 400, uh, let's say, fisticuffs uh, inside and on airplanes over the past few months. So some airlines have decided to uh, not serve alcohol and not that I would have had any on this trip on the plane at this point. But it was, it was definitely different, but just glad to be on, glad to see um, airline industry back in the game. I mean, a lot of those uh, stewardesses and stewards and airplane uh, pilots, you know, took a big hit along with the people uh, who have to staff them, everything from fuel to clean up. So, yeah, so good to be back on and look forward to more. close to other people, like packed into the plane. That's what did it for me. I mean, like, yeah, you just, it's, I spent a lot of time saying like, I trust the vaccine. I trust it in my head through my through my two masks because you just it's been a long time since we've been that close to other people. But I'm with you. It's nice to be able to get out a little bit and to and to travel and a lot more of it coming up in the future. So let's hope things stay as they are, at least here. They're certainly not like that in other parts of the world. I know my 
whole family in Argentina is uh, locked down again. So thoughts mm-hmm. to those who are not lucky enough to be in the position that many of us are here. And not every not every U.S. community is in the position that our communities are either. Correct. So I've got a story here, though, about we're getting, we're a little uh, we're a little northeast center today. It happens. But, you know, this podcast is a production of Pioneer Institute. Yes, it is. I have an article here today that is bringing me a little bit of pleasure, maybe a lot of, I don't know. So it's, it's about our commissioner, Jeff Riley and the title, this is in the Herald. It's the Massachusetts delegation goes after Jeff Riley on funding for Boston schools. Okay. So long story short, commissioner Jeff Riley, um, the Boston public schools, how do I put this, Gerard? Uh, they're, they're a little bit of a mess sometimes. And um, when Commissioner Riley was first hired into this job, folks thought, you know, he had he had some pretty big plans. And I, I think he, he had those plans. I think he still has those plans. A couple different things happened. An audit came out on the Boston public schools that really showed a lot of its um, challenges, um, shall we speak, in terms of management, bureaucracy, and just like bottom line, kids aren't learning. And Commissioner Riley is somebody who knew that. Um, so this audit comes out. It was sort of buried. I mean, you can imagine the politics around it. And then, boom, pandemic. And so what, what's not a good time to talk about, you know, getting school districts in shape? Well, in the middle of a pandemic, when everybody is working their tushy off, just to figure out how you're going to deliver instruction, count the kids, figure out who needs what, right? Um, and, and in a place like Boston, as in so many communities, first and top of mind for all teachers and administrators was like making sure kids are safe and fed. Um, but so Commissioner Riley made a bit of a surprising move last week when, um, you know, the Boston School Committee in particular, it's it keeps sort of losing members um, for various reasons. The last hmm. two lost over some, um, let's just say, you know how you, you ever send that text message that maybe you shouldn't have sent? Yes. Um, like the yeah. ones I get from you. Yeah. Yeah, well, to- yeah, totally, all the time. I mean, and I'm, I'm never, ever drinking a glass of wine when I send those. And, you know, no, I'm not, actually. Um, but so there there have been some, like, just, like, low-grade scandals. And actually, none of these text messages were super offensive. It's just people saying things that they shouldn't be saying in the context of a school committee meeting. We'll put it that way. Anyhow, okay. I'm, I'm going on too long. Commissioner Riley is threatening to withhold ESSER funds from the Boston public schools. And of course, there's just a lot of rigmarole right now. Like number one, how can you even threaten that? And number two, can you do it? <laughs> and so um, our own Jamie Gass of Pioneer Institute, who who is a go-to kind of guy on these kinds of issues, is quoted here in this Herald piece and saying that, you know, yeah, under certain buckets of, of ESSER, especially, especially the state set-aside, the commissioner does have authority to do this. And so it's not really, as the article goes on to explain, a question of whether or not he has authority, um, although I'm sure people will continue to challenge that. It's more of a, like, will he do it scenario? Now, here's what the article doesn't go into great detail about, which I just find fascinating, Gerard, is you've got, like, senators and um, Senator Warren um Congressperson Ayanna Presley, Senator Ed Markey saying, how dare you, like, give them the money right away. How many districts, Gerard, do you think have even begun to spend the first round of federal money they got? Percentage-wise, if I had to guess for Massachusetts, 10. Thank you. And have they even begun to expend, like, the, you know, I mean, these, these are huge amounts of money. So the point I'm making is that Riley is making a point, and I think it's well taken. 
but he's not going to necessarily hurt these districts who that Boston, which is sitting on tons and tons and tons of money that it not only has it not spent yet, it's not clear that it's figured out what it's going to do with the money. Like the plans aren't clear. So I think that for a commissioner to say, do you know what? I am going to use this pot of money as an incentive for you to sort of get your life together a little bit here, kiddo. Like that to me makes some sense. So I'm sure we'll get some pushback on this from listeners, but I say cheers to Commissioner Riley. And I'm I'm very curious, Gerard, to see where this goes. I'm also curious to hear what you think about this, given that you yourself have been a commissioner. Withholding money is always a tough topic um, for a host of reasons, and we know why. I won't weigh into whether the commissioner should or should not. What I will say is it's a bold move uh, to even make that kind of threat, uh, particularly in a state that is not only education uh, strong, but also interest strong or interest heavy. So, um, we'll see. I'm going to follow with you. Um, you know, when we hear these discussions, particularly in the South, uh, those decisions go back to post Brown, uh, V board of education and yeah, commissioners different. threatening to withhold money. And there were also uh, discussions in the 1980s and nineties when you had state takeovers, a state takeover school system, um, the threat of withholding money. So it's not new. It often comes at a crisis, but guess what? I think this is a crisis moment. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to follow that with great interest. My story also falls, of course, when we talk about reform on an issue of money. And this one is a further south than you. It's in New Jersey. And this, it, this article comes from the Wall Street Journal and it's from the editorial board and it's uh, dated June 23rd. And the title is Surprise Education Win in Newark. And the New Jersey Supreme Court, by a 7-0 decision, decided to uphold the expansion of seven charter schools to serve more students in that city. Now, in 2016, the Commissioner of Education, as we're talking about commissioners, had approved the expansion of Newark charter schools uh, for the city. And there's an advocacy group called Education Law Center who sued the superintendent and tried to claim or did claim two things. Number one, they say the commissioner in approving this did not consider fiscal harm and what it would mean to Newark's traditional system. Now, those of you who follow school finance know that Newark has been part of a school uh, finance suit or challenges going back to the 1970s. Uh, Abbott one has turned into Abbott plus. We know that Newark is a school system in New Jersey where more where students on average are receiving more than $20,000 uh, per student. And so there's been a long litigious process in the state, some wins, some losses. They're basically saying that by expanding charter schools, you're going to harm Newark public schools. Now, what's so interesting about that, that uh, claim is that the school system itself said in its assessment they did not find that the expansion of charter schools would have a harm, a fiscal harm uh, on the system. The school system itself said, no, this would not harm the system. And yet uh, a group of advocates and attorneys said it would. The court actually responded by saying that after looking at, you know, the uh, the facts, it in fact would not harm schools in Newark fiscally. So that's check one. So they move from one R being revenue to the predictable R, which is race. And what they said is that if you expand charter schools, you're going to worsen segregation uh, in here in the city by race, 
but also by disability and English language learners. So let's unpack that. Currently, 80% of the 20,000 students in Newark's charter school are black and 16% are Hispanic. So I'm looking at, oh, 96% are at least non-white. In the school system itself, 50% of the students are Hispanic, 90% are black. So we're looking at 90%, 10% at least not white. I lived in Jersey City in the mid-1990s, had a chance to open up a charter school um, in the Trenton area years ago. And back then, advocates were saying, we are not going to support you opening this charter school. Why? Because, drumroll, it's going to lead to segregation in a system that was already at that time over 80% non-white. Now, that is an argument at some point that we have to place to rest. Not because I'm saying segregation isn't real or that it's something that we shouldn't address. But when you have a system that is 50% Hispanic, 40% black in Newark, the charter schools are 96%. Are we ultimately spending millions of dollars, countless you know, human hours, or we're trying to save what could be the educational loss of 10% of the white students or should we really focus on the educational experience of the students you have, not the students you want? Now, the court did say that the superintendent, or in this case, the commissioner, maybe did not spend enough time focused on what this would mean um, to the demography. But at the same time, they said reversing this decision uh, would be bad. So that's check two. But there was also a quote, actually a reference in here to a uh, report published by three scholars, uh, Marcus Winters being one who I've had a chance to look at his work uh, before, but included as Colin Shanks, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Boston University. We have Allison Gilmore at Temple. and Now Marcus Winters is at Boston. And they looked they wrote a report on the effect of charter schools on student mobility and classification status. And he identified um, looking at a random component of student assignments in Newark to measure the causal effect of enrolling in a charter school. Here's the bottom line. Enrolling in a charter school increases the likelihood that a student is declassified out of special education, but does not impact the probability that a student will receive a new disability category. So the... Education Law Center was claiming that it would have a major impact on students with disability. This report is showing it's not as big as you think. Are there going to be challenges? Absolutely. But we have challenges already with students with disability in the traditional system. So according to the Wall Street Journal editorial board, they think it's a great win. Uh, I do as well. Um, Having worked with students in Newark and Jersey City from 95 to 97 in a Saturday program and a summer program to help prepare them to pass the high school exam. There are a lot of challenges in that city. I still think there are. But I'd also like to say that you don't have a win like this without also uh, the work of someone like Michelle Ashton, who ran a uh, initiative that was funded by Mark Zuckerberg when he you know, provided you know, $100 million to the area when Cory Booker was mayor. It's also a win going back to Governor Christine Todd Whitman and the lawmakers who helped create the first charter school law. It's the parents, it's the educators in the city who have fought for this. And to think in a city where we have And at a a time when we say we want to follow the science, when the science has shown that students who are enrolled in Newark charter schools on an apples to apples comparison with their peers in the traditional public school system are doing better academically in math um, and in reading, 
Are there challenges? Absolutely. But if, in fact, we say that all black lives matter and if we really believe that you're going to close the economic gap by making sure people are prepared, I just don't know how you can say you're for black lives matter and be against charter schools in the city of Newark. (laughs) Amen, Gerard. And and Newark is just always a fascinating, longstanding for a long time. Quite, quite a fascinating case of um, a microcosm in some ways of what's going on in the rest of the country. But this is, yeah, charter schools in Newark are uh, are a win. I worked with a lot of uh, teachers when I was in teacher training who were working at charter schools in Newark. I'm also always fascinated by the segregation argument, um, not only for the reasons that you outlined, because our, our district schools are so heavily segregated, which has zero to do with charters and everything to do with how we redline families out of communities and zone kids in schools. Yep. Um, but also because I think that nine times out of ten, and maybe maybe my perception is off here, that when I hear that argument, it's usually not black families making it. It's usually white leaders of special interest groups making said argument, whereas it's black families in Newark, in places like Newark, um, because most of the families in places like Newark are families of color, are actually making the choice to send their kids to charter schools. And so, you know, like once again, it's like who who – Who's in control here? Is it the parents that have the um, that have the option to choose a better, higher performing school, saying we want to we want to continue to have these options, we want to have more of these options, or are or is it special interest groups? To your point, who pretend to be speaking on behalf of said parents? And so, this is um, this is a win, and this is I'm I'm really happy to hear how this story um, turned out. And as usual, all eyes on Newark. Also, shout out to Marcus and his team for that great research. I just recently joined the advisory board of the BU Wheelock Education Policy Center and very excited to see more of that high quality work coming out of that um, institution because it's it's good. Um, it's good, strong research that helps point us in the right direction, I think, when it comes to policy, which is what it's supposed to do. Right. You're here. All right. Well, coming up after this, Gerard, you know, we are on the cusp here. Well, almost not quite on the cusp. We've got some hot, muggy uh, July days to get through. Um, But we're coming up on on the 4th of July here on Independence Day. And we are going to be talking to somebody who's going to give us a lot of interesting context for um, for some of the major players in 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 the reason why in the Revolutionary War, the reason why we, we have this holiday at all. So after this, we will be speaking with Dr. David Hackett Fisher. Um, of Brandeis University. Looking forward to it. Listeners, welcome back. Today we are going to be speaking with Dr. David Hackett Fisher. He is the University Professor and Earl Warren Professor of History Emeritus at Brandeis University. His works focus not only on great individuals, but also on the societies and people behind the wider movements that informed those individuals' accomplishments. Fisher has authored several books, including Albion's Seeds, Four British Folkways in America, The Groundbreaking Paul Revere's Ride, and Washington's Crossing, a study of the American Revolution with a special focus on George Washington's 1776 crossing of the Delaware River. It became a popular bestseller and won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for History. He also wrote a well-regarded book on French explorer Samuel de Champlain, 
Champlain's dream. In 1990, Professor Fisher was awarded the Louis Dembitz Brandeis Prize for Excellence in Teaching and was named Massachusetts Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. And um, that is saying a lot because, boy, do we have a lot of professors here in Massachusetts. He became a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1995. In 2015, he won the Pritzker Military Museum and Library Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement in Military Writing. Fisher earned a bachelor's degree from Princeton and a PhD uh, in history from Johns Hopkins University. Dr. David Hackett Fisher, welcome to The Learning Curve. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, we're really happy um, to have you here. So, Dr. Fisher, um, here we are the week before we celebrate the 4th of July, and this seems like a really opportune time to explore some key figures who helped secure American independence from Great Britain, something that my, um, I will say, my my children who are um, 11, 7, and 4 are, are kind of obsessed with lately. Um, for many generations, school children, I, I certainly among them, have recited Longfellow's classic 1861 poem, Paul Revere's Ride, and that sort of made Revere a, a bit of a mythical folk hero. Now, your groundbreaking book examines the historical Paul Revere. So I'm asking for my children here, <laughs> what should what should teachers, what should students know about the actual man and his famous ride on April 18th and 19th, 1775. And if you don't mind my asking, um, my son would also like to know where Paul Revere actually lived. Where, where Paul Revere actually lived? Uh, he yes. He lived uh, in, uh, in, in Boston, uh, in the, the, the north end of, of Boston. That's a, a very sp- a, a special part yeah. of, of, of the town. Uh, and uh, he also uh, founded um, a, a, a business that grew um, uh, uh, from his work as a blacksmith into a major industrial uh, operation, uh, both in in the in the city where he lived, and then also founded another operation in the southern part of Massachusetts, in Canton, Massachusetts, and this became a major American business corporation called the Revere Copper and Brass Corporation. And it made a lot of things from those metals, building on what he had done in his early life. Oh, that's amazing. Well, my uh, my son, Nicholas, is going to be very happy to know that. Could you, so those those are a few things that most of us do not know about the actual man. What else is it you think students and teachers should be thinking about when we read about and teach about Paul Revere? Well, I think that for me, the most interesting and important thing is about, is about the, the uh, his purposes and thoughts uh, uh, that led him to take a leading role in the American Revolution and then the War of Independence. Uh, what he was about, I think, is the is, is, is something that we should we, we should think about, and uh, I, it's much of it is relevant to our own time. Um, uh, he he was uh, deeply um, absorbed in promoting uh, what we would call an open society, a society where people lived under the rule of law, uh, and in which uh, they uh, governed themselves. Um, uh, he was very active in the Boston Town Meeting, uh, which ran, uh, in which a, a, a large part of the population uh, uh, ran the affairs of the town, uh, and so he was he was building upon all of that, and uh, increasingly felt uh, 
uh, as, uh, in the 1760s uh, that uh, British leaders uh, uh, were not happy about self-government in, in America. They wanted to run America as a colony, and uh, that led to a head-on collision that became first the American Revolution, and then the War of Independence. He served in both of those things, and uh, and it was it was urgent business for him. And what was urgent about it was not merely the independence of the United States, but the values that he thought the people of this country uh, were uh, were devoted to protecting. That's certainly something that I don't remember. Um putting together all of that uh, in school. <laughs> um, but, you know, we hear so much about the ride, but so little about the man and his motivation. Um, another question we have for you is around the character of Thomas Gage. So in your book, you write, without Thomas Gage, there might well have been no coercive acts, no midnight ride, and no fighting at Lexington and Concord. So who was Thomas Gage? He was a general, but who, who was he? And what role does he play in your narrative? What should we know about his contribution to the political crisis that led up to the American Revolution? He was, um, he was a, a, a professional soldier. He was uh, an officer in the British Army. Uh, and uh, came to America in uh, leading um, uh, 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 units uh, that were first uh, fighting the, the the French and seeking to maintain the um, uh, the uh, the separation of the to, make, to maintain the colonies as British rather than being conquered by others, and then he found himself increasingly uh, at odds with. Uh, with 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 uh, the American people, uh, and uh, he was thinking of a system. He was very much of a top-down sort of a man. He was a decent man, upright, but he believed that uh, that uh, the the American people were not fit to run their own affairs, and that he was. And he what he tried to do with with other people who came to high office in Britain during the 1760s was to try to impose a system of control from from London over the colonies. It had been a, a, a very complicated relationship uh, between what they called the mother country uh, of Great Britain and also the, uh, the, the, the people of the, of the 13 colonies. Um, and that's what he was – that was the, 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 the problem that he was dealing with, was uh, almost everybody thought that the relations – that existed were not quite as they should be, but the American the people wanted to change them in one direction, and he wanted to change them in another. It had always been a, 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 a um, contested idea of how things w- went in the colonies, and uh, the, uh, the, even as British leaders thought that they controlled the empire, it was also a system in Britain where there was a parliament, and uh, there were bodies like parliaments in the American, uh, in all the American colonies, uh, and the British supported them. Uh, and then there was a collision uh, between these various groups, uh, and th- that's where General Gage uh, came came in. It's really fascinating to think about how all of these. Um how all of these things play together. And General Gage is a figure that so many of us, I think, have, have never heard of. Um, it, you're talking about the colonies and what they were like. And here, here, um, some of us sit in Boston, certainly I do, and, and our colleagues here at Pioneer. And I'm, I'm curious to know about 
the Boston of Revere's time. So um, it was, we can understand that it was obviously much smaller, although Boston's not huge today, but about 15,000 very tight-knit people who, you know, it was local self-government and civic ideals and, and, and what they thought about was basing institutions on the common good, but also autonomy and running their own affairs. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about sort of the Revere's inner circle, his friends, his allies, maybe his adversaries, and and the um, civic institutions, the associations um, they created, and and then on top of that, why the British Empire with its its imperial court and its ministers and its large military was such an existential threat to these colonists? Yes. Well, the, the, the short answer is that. Uh Something happened in the founding of Massachusetts. It was called the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and it was founded, uh, really got started in 1629, uh, long before uh, uh, Paul Revere. Uh, And uh, these were uh, English uh, Puritans, most of them, uh, who um, uh, left England uh, for religious freedom, but they also, when they came to America, they created a government for themselves in the period of what was called the Great Migration. This was from 1629 to 1640. And that's when uh, not only Massachusetts, but also uh, New England uh, was, was largely populated. And what they did was, first of all, they, they, they enacted a charter, which was like a constitution. It was adapted from the charter of the... Of the of the of the corporation uh, that that, that uh, was founded to to move people from Britain to up to America, and then within that uh, charter, uh, they also uh, created uh, something which they called the General Court of Massachusetts, and the General Court was a legislature. Um, it there was uh, two houses. Uh, and uh, the lower house was elected by uh, by uh, people in the towns, and they came together in a legislature in Boston in this period from 1629 to 1640. And they passed a series of laws in which they began to govern themselves from the very start. And one, one law they passed was called the New England Town Act, the New England Town Act. And what that did was to... Um, uh, Create in every town uh, a, 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 a a system of town meeting government, in which all of the males, women could not vote yet, but um, uh, males, uh, 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 most males could could vote, and uh, they uh, uh, joined together and, uh, and 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 govern themselves. Uh, and that was established in this period of the Great Migration of 1629 to 1640, and it continued from that time all the way to the American Revolution. And there were various times in which the British government tried to limit, in some cases briefly and always unsuccessfully, tried to try to to destroy that system and to impose more control from the top down, but they never succeeded. And so uh, Paul Revere and his uh, contemporaries were used to running their own affairs. They'd been doing it for many generations. And then in came uh, General Gage, and he tried to order them to stop. He began to insist that he should approve or be able to reject anything that they enacted that he thought was 
not correct. Uh, and so there was a there, there was a collision that way, uh, which led uh, to uh, what we remember as the American Revolution. This was only what happened in in Massachusetts. There were similar things, never quite, never twice the same, in all of the American thirteen colonies. They were all going through all of this, and they it was a, a highly principled process. Our forebears uh, uh, believed deeply in what they were doing, and they were convinced that they had a, 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 a God-given right to run their own affairs. Uh, and General Gage said, "No way," and that's what led to the to the great uh, explosion uh, that became the American Revolution. Well, Professor, before we transition from New England to the Mid-Atlantic, uh, I'm reminded, uh, as I hear you talk about the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, that in 1642, uh, the legislature here, or at that time, Massachusetts, actually required parents uh, to do what they could to make sure their students could read. And in 1647, passed the Old Deluder Satan Act. And so um, those group of people were very involved in what you're talking about. And there's very strong alignment with education. But thought I would mention that before I shift us to the Mid-Atlantic, in particular to someone uh, you know well, George Washington, who uh, yeah. grew up in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I live. So you won the Pulitzer Prize for Washington's Crossing, uh, which was uh, chronicled the pivotal, uh, pivotal event of the American War of Independence. And you talked about the 1776 crossing of the Delaware River to attack the British in Trenton. Would you talk about why this event mattered so much and what our teachers and young people today should know about it? Yes. Well, before I answer that question, let me just say, add a sentence or two to what you said about those uh, those two acts in the 1640s, in 1642 and 1647, uh, the first act required um, every uh, family in New England to teach its children to read and write. And the second act required every town to establish schools for the children of New England. Uh, and that created uh, a, a system of very broad schooling. Uh, which was fundamental to the uh, to to New England, very different uh, from uh, from other colonies. Uh, but uh, and on top of that, in 1636, uh, the the people of of Massachusetts also founded the first colony uh, for the first college in what is now the the United States. So that was what became Harvard uh, College and now Harvard University. Uh, so they were very actively building. An entire system of literacy, of broad schooling, uh, and of uh, secondary and tertiary education, all within the first generation in, in New England. And they kept on at that uh, in every generation. Thank you. And now I would like to shift to um, George Washington and his crossing. And so would love for you to talk about why that event was so important and why teachers and students today should learn as much as they can about it. Yes. Well, let me let me uh, begin by saying that uh, my roots are not in, uh, in in New England so much. I was born and raised in the Chesapeake area, mainly in the what is now the state of Maryland. Uh, and uh, the, the history here was very different. Uh, the 
uh, I won't go into all the differences, but suffice to say there was nothing like that town meeting government in Maryland and Virginia. Um, but instead, there was uh, a system of county government, a process of election of people to the state legislature. Uh, and then the, the legislature and others often appointed uh, local officials. So it wasn't quite as democratic as the New England town system. But still, these people in other ways were used to managing their own affairs, though they managed them in, in a very different way. It was also very different in that this was a plantation economy. And uh, they began to import large numbers of African slaves. Slaves were, appointed, were, were imported everywhere, uh, but in much larger numbers uh, in, uh, in, in, in Maryland and, and Virginia, and even larger numbers south of Virginia. Uh, and that created a very different system. But still, in all of these uh, early states, uh, the, uh, the, the, the free people who lived there were used to running their own affairs in their different ways uh, and joined together in the American Revolution. Thank you. So let's stick with Washington. So his contemporaries, uh, as well as modern biographers today, have called him an indispensable man uh, to the American cause. Could you share with us what we need to know about him uh, beyond what we often read in school or for the, some of us who went to graduate school, we learn more. What about his character, uh, weaknesses, his uh, military leadership, and just how impossible or improbable uh, would it have been for us to actually win in the absence of a George Washington? Well, uh, Washington was, um, uh, was come, came from a family of planters. Uh, they were of the English gentry. Uh, many of the founders of New England came from the yeomanry, uh, and they were smaller farmers and that sort of thing. But he came from the elites who ran the, the, much of the countryside, particularly in the uh, in the the south, the central part of England from whence he came. The New Englanders came mostly from East Anglia in the east part of England. Two very different cultures. Uh, and uh, Washington came from a place where uh, most of the public affairs were dominated by these small uh, uh, elites of people who were called gentry, uh, and um, uh, they were not elected. They were they were uh, it was more of an appointive system, and he rose through that system, which was introduced to to Virginia, uh, and uh, began to take a role in in, in local government. These men were also uh, in this uh, in, in, in this, this ruling elite were uh, were trained often as professional soldiers, or I shouldn't say professional soldiers. They were they're, uh, they're, uh, they were trained uh, to to, uh, to serve as, as soldiers, and and did that. Uh, and Washington was followed that English model, and became uh, very uh, important in the local government of Fairfax County as a member of that local elite. And these, uh, these uh, uh, elites were challenged by the British government in the same way that the New England towns were challenged. And that led them to make common cause, even as they were profoundly different in many ways. This was a much more elitist sort of a system in the South. It was one that was founded on a 
broad system of uh, of involuntary uh, labor of slavery, uh, and uh, it, it, but even as they were they were deeply unlike each other, north and south, and the differences would continue to grow until the Civil War. Uh, they they were themselves. Uh, commonly threatened by the British, uh, who were trying to impose uh, control over all of the colonies. Thank you. Before I go to the question about your new work on the African founders, I just want to finish up on George Washington. Right now, his name is either held in high esteem or not. And there are a number of school districts, uh, lawmakers, businesses, and others who are questioning whether or not we should keep his name as part of the American memory, particularly in K-12 schools. As someone who studied him uh, better than most of us, what are your thoughts or ideas or maybe even some directions that we, the people, should think about as we decide whose name to keep on a school building and whose name to remove? Well, I think much of the controversy about Washington today uh, derives from the, the fact that he was a slaveholder uh, and uh, he was. He, I think, is when people want to remove him from the American pantheon. I think that's the reason why. And I, my view is that people are complicated. And yes, it's true that he was a slaveholder, and this slaveholding system was a brutal system. But at the same time, he was a man of high principle in in, in other ways. In the way that. Uh, he tried to promote a system of government by these local elites and courts in in in, in Virginia, and he was uh, struggling to to protect that system from interference by the by British imperial officials, and in all of that, I think we can sympathize with him. And then he also the other thing that's interesting about Washington is that he was trained um, from a very early age to be a leader. Uh, to to lead other people by building a, a broad base of consent amongst them. This is not all the people. It was building a, 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 a group of, of, of leaders amongst an elite. And he became very good at doing that. Uh, and when the country uh, found itself, the, the 13 colonies found themselves in 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 a war with the British Empire at that time, the most powerful empire in the world, uh, they had to create uh, an armed uh, a system of, uh, of 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 military strength to do it, and they found a leader in in Washington, and he was very effective as a military leader. But beyond that, he also believed in what we might call due process and the rule of law. He believed in doing things by the book, and what he tried to do was to lead others in ways that could win them to a common cause. And so, uh, when he, uh, when the, when the uh, fighting began in the American Revolution, uh, in uh, 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 he uh, led uh, a, a group of uh, British uh, 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 troops to Boston, where the where the fighting began. And there he became um, – his leadership was, rec was recognized very rapidly by people from other, other uh, colonies now beginning to function as states. And they found that Washington, in that he believed in, in leadership by, by law, uh, a leadership by due process, uh, 
leadership by respecting other people, leadership by winning the consent of other people that he was working with. And so they began, and it was New Englanders, uh, John Adams and others, who proposed uh, that he be made uh, the uh, the, uh, the commanding uh, the the commander of the uh, American uh, Continental Army, uh, and he became one of our first uh, uh, truly American leaders that way, and he uh, and he excelled in that. He was a very decent man. He was he had high integrity. Uh, his word was his bond. Um, and people felt they could trust him, and he built a sense of 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 of, 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 of conduct in American um, uh, in, in American leadership uh, that set a model for many others, and that's why he moved to the center. And I think he deserves. I, I have the highest respect for him. I also have the highest respect for the New Englanders, uh, but Washington was something special. Everybody recognized that. Uh, and we were very lucky that he uh, was there, and, 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 and then he then he proceeded to lead not only the army, but uh, then he presided over the continental uh, over the the uh, constitutional convention that enacted the the um, the American Constitution that we live under today, and he won people to the support of that, even when they were deeply divided amongst themselves about many of them, and then he was uh, uh, elected. Um, by uh, by uh, first first in 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 the local elections and then in the electoral college and he was elected to be the first president and what's so extraordinary about that he was that he was elected unanimously uh, and the entire country rallied to him and as long as he was in office uh, much of that uh, persisted not all of it some of it there we began to get political parties at the end of his presidency and they started to to disagree amongst themselves uh, but washington always um uh, was was above that and then um after he served for two uh, terms and he decided that nobody should serve more than two and he refused to run for re-election even though he could have continued uh, he wrote a farewell address that became one of the great um, documents in American history. And generations of American children all had to learn the farewell address and to, and to, and to remember it. And it was mainly about the rule of law and treating people decently. And he set a model for us that we should always remember. Uh, and I think we have more need for that with every passing generation. And my hat's off to George Washington. And as we discuss at this time, political parties, what he mentioned back then, uh, the spirit of faction. So let's move he did, to he did not approve of, of parties. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and yet uh, it was found that uh, when people ran uh, trying to get uh, uh, bills through legislatures, it was very difficult to do that in the in the Senate and the House of Representatives, and uh, um, parties were called into being because there were ways of getting things done, uh, and then they became highly principled as well. And the principles were different. We de- developed a two-party system that we've had most of the time, though not all of the time, uh, and um, all of that happened in the two. 
uh, terms of George Washington's presidency. So, so let's turn to a new book that's going to be published early next year titled African Founders. And you've described the book as taking a regional approach to that subject as fundamental as American values, ideals and institutions. And, you you know, you included five re, oh, well, research trips uh, to five African nations. Would you share with our listeners some of the main ideas of this upcoming book? Yes, it's um, it, it's about the diversity of this great republic um uh and uh, uh, most of my much of my writing um most of my books are uh, take a regional approach to american history uh uh there's a, a book called albion seed which uh, divides all of uh, the uh, what would become the united states into into regions and studies each of them uh, one of them is centering on new england another centering on the chesapeake uh, along the lines we've just discussed uh and then um uh, 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 we, um, my my work uh, follows uh, all of that uh, and uh, uh, studies um, the way in which uh, uh, this great republic was organized around that 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 that, uh, that deep process of diversity, which always has been very creative in the way that the, the way that it 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 worked. And uh, the founders and leaders in the American Revolution, uh, first led by the first president, who was Washington, and as well the second president, who was John Adams, uh, and uh, 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 they really worked to, to build a system of parties uh, that could make that system run efficiently. Uh, and it was very difficult to, to to make that happen, and there were there were uh, there was a, a considerable struggle, but they pulled it off, and the country remained intact despite many efforts to divide it. Until 1861, when finally it came apart, and we had to we had, had to had to fight a, a, a terrible civil war uh, to reunite the country uh, once more, and uh, I think all of that is the process by which our system has been built, and we should remember it because uh, we keep facing some of these tensions in our own time, and the question is how do we deal with that? And we can't do what the founders did; that was another world. Uh, but we can learn from their example of working with each other. We can learn from the, the way that they tried to uh, to live by the rule of law, which is what the what the the New Englanders began to do, uh, and then to, to work by treating other people decently within the rule of law, which is what George Washington did. And it's really important that we remember that. That's what I try to teach in the classroom: is to uh, get students into the study of the stresses and tensions that we've had to had to deal with and how people found ways of making that happen often with great difficulty and the whole system came came apart uh in 1861 and it's been under heavy stress in the in the 20th century but we've still been able to keep it going and now it's going to be in the hands of yet another generation and the question is how will they do when they take their turn at this and I think a key to that is if they can remember what their forebears have did, done, if they can remember what they learned, what, 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 what the people who came before them uh, were able to, to do by trial and error, many trials, many errors, but they kept at it and they made this great republic function. Now it's in our hands and it's uh, no small task to keep it going.
Professor Karen and I thank you so much for spending time with us to talk about important figures, social networks, ideas in New England, the Mid-Atlantic, about Virginia, and really about the whole important part of leadership. I think we often forget that it's just not men and women alone, but it's people who are willing to be uncomfortable, to take at times unpopular decisions, and at times to lead people in ways and places maybe they were not interested in going. So this is really good, as we expected, and look forward to uh, having you on again at another point. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure to, to talk and to listen to you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jared, we're going to close it out with this week's tweet of the week from Education Week at Education Week. We haven't had a tweet from Education Week in a while. Um, it's usually um, it's usually one of our friends from AEI or Heritage or something like that. Uh, Neil McCluskey is a favorite tweeter of ours, isn't he? Here, this is you know this is just so important. Every time we talk about NAEP, I get a little bit excited and a little bit scared. Um, but the tweet says, a growing proportion of fourth and eighth graders read at the lowest level on national tests. Experts are working to understand why. So this is a really interesting article because it goes beyond think, you know, like every couple of years, every year we're talking about, yep, here's another year of either stagnant NAEP results or failing NAEP results. And here are some patches of light, right? But what this is talking about, it's that like reading scores, reading scores are are, are not good, right? So, so just so many kids, and I will say adults in this country, are not reading at um, at levels that would qualify them in most cases to even graduate with a high school degree. But really troubling is that when you look at the NAEP data, fourth and eighth graders, reading scores are going down even further among the lowest performers. So the big question is why, of course. And Gerard, you have certainly been around for the reading wars in this country. How do we teach reading? What kind of approach do we take? But what this really comes down to is, um, you know, this article talks about how researchers are looking at, you know, what is it that we are doing or not doing to teach foundational literacy skills early in our schools? And, you know, we all know that um, that a lot of this stuff, you know, the the word gap, many things, they begin in the home and they depend upon, in many cases, the opportunities that parents have had. So if parents haven't had the luxury of certain educational opportunities, um, their children are going to be starting off in a different place when they start school. But schools have the ability to close these gaps early on if they teach reading well. I want to give a shout out here to my colleague, Dr. Kim Yana Burke who um, does early literacy work at the Foundation for Excellence in Education. And, you know, one of the things she talks about, she she ran Mississippi's program for quite a long time, their early literacy program. And what's, what state has been rising in the ranks on NAEP, especially when it comes to reading? Mississippi. Mississippi. And one of the things that she talks about in Hammer's Home again and again and again is we need to do whatever it takes to get kids reading by grade three, whatever it takes. And yeah, in some cases, it's really hard. That means that we might have to retain students or um, or give them different opportunities to learn. But it's also about giving them those foundational skills, you know, sort of like a phonics plus education. But we can't we, we spend so much time arguing about that how of teaching reading that um, we're 
you know, we're missing the fact that kids are falling through the cracks left and right in at higher rates. So uh, this is scary stuff. This is something to watch. And I hope that someday soon, maybe we'll be able to have another literacy expert on to talk to us about these very issues and what NAEP tells us about these issues and why NAEP is important uh, for shining a spotlight on these issues. And Jared, I'm just going to leave it at that with a little rant. We've had a great show this week. So happy that we can be back together, this podcast team. It's yes. a highlight of my week, every week. And next week, we are going to be with Susan Patrick of Aurora Education. So until then, I wish you a wonderful, hopefully not too hot and humid holiday weekend. Be careful if you're on a boat. Um, Donate any dad <laughs> And and, um, just relax as much as you can, my friend. You're a hardworking guy. So take care, Gerard. Will do, and same to you. Bye-bye.